We're in chapter 4 of John's Gospel. We're still in this sort of interlude between Jesus Christ, who is sitting beside the well at high noon. It's the middle of the day. It's hot. He's traveled a long way by foot with his disciples. His disciples are away now into town, probably in the town that the Samaritan woman comes from, Sychar. And now he's visiting with her and she comes walking up and he asks her a strange question. He asks for her help in getting a drink of water, which was fascinating to her. I imagine her being stunned even for a moment, wondering how this Jewish man would be talking to her, a Samaritan woman. And so we're looking at the last portion of that in verse 27 to 42 in a two-part series that will, Lord willing, finish next week, The Savior of the World. And of course, that title is taken from the last clause of verse 42, where the men of Sychar themselves, and this is a spoiler alert, become aware that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Savior. They come to find out for themselves. It's really quite a fascinating end of this story. It's a long story as these these exchanges between Jesus and other biblical characters go. All these 42 verses have to do with his meeting there at the well with a Samaritan woman. So we'll pick it up in verse 27 of chapter 4 in this part 1 of the Savior of the world. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed with them, stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this assurance. Indeed, we've had many assurances that Jesus is the Christ, but we have a benefit that they didn't have, as you well know, back then. We know the end of the story. You've given it to us. We've, we've been blessed to have the full canon of scriptures, now closed, but eternal forever the inspired, authoritative, eternal Word of God. And so we look at these and aren't nearly as impacted as I'm sure they were as you disclose them to the people in person. What we see as you reveal yourself to them, one at a time, a group at a time, how impacted they are, how overwhelmed they are to actually see the Son of God, Messiah, in person. That's something we haven't seen. And we look forward to it, O Lord. One day, being with you in glory. For now, help us to find our place back then, so long ago, 
with this Samaritan woman at the well as you speak with her so masterfully as you evangelize her individually, the God of the universe, the agent of creation, spending time with one social outcast, one Samaritan woman. So help us, Lord, to appreciate all that's taken place here now in the text before us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So the objective of all of this is the same as it is for the entire gospel, as John says in chapter 21, when he said these things are written so that you might what? Believe. That's right. That's what's going on here. That's his intention from the first chapter as we saw at verse 1 and going forward. So this is indeed the Savior of the world. It's the conclusion we're all to draw when we hear his word. She's hearing his word. These aren't just any words. They're eternal words. They're words that parse through the fleshy places of her heart, pick through and look at the, the images of her life. The Lord would peel back the wall of his temple and see the things that are growing there. She knows what he's looking at. She knows and she's surprised pleasantly. I would suggest that he's not horrified at what he sees. No. Indeed, it's the sick that need the physician, not the well. She understands that. And we've seen this progression unfold as he has worked with this woman, this precious soul who, when he first encounters her, is surely jaded, doesn't have time for anybody's nonsense, doesn't want to hear any more of the um, accusations uh, thrown at her. She's had enough. She's calloused. And he opens her up and he finds yet a tender place, a place that yet can come to life. A little spark, a flicker, as we heard about this first hour, a flicker that he can fan into full flame and bring to light such a light that would expose who he is. This is, you must be at least a prophet. You're getting there. You're not there yet. Well, I know that the Messiah is coming. There it is. Folks, that's faith. That's faith. Isn't that what the man on the cross had next to Jesus? He knew who he was. I know that when Messiah, she's halfway there. She's just about to cross the finish line. When Messiah comes, he'll be able to tell us all things. That's omniscient. She's saying he's coming. That's faith. She had the same faith of Abraham, depending that one day there would be a Messiah who comes to save right? But he wouldn't just be any savior. He's not the conquering king who would conquer the Romans when he comes. How limited and self-focused is that? He would be the son of God, no less than the son of God himself who would come. And Because he, he would be omniscient. Nothing would be hidden from him. Indeed, everything is open and displayed before the eyes of him with whom we have to do sees all these things. There's nothing secret. She's getting that now. But then this, I who speak with you am he. That's it. That's it. I believe with all my heart, this is the moment of conversion. This is the moment because she has faith. She recognizes this as the son of God, the Messiah. She knows like the rest of us great sinners, of how needy she is for a loving God who would come despite her background and save her from her sins. She knows where she's headed. And she knows she has an insatiable heart. She keeps looking around this creation to find satisfaction. She hasn't found it. Five husbands previously finally just giving up on marriage altogether or couldn't find another man that would be willing to marry her after five. Indeed, with all of that History, she has to be at least middle-aged. She's wear-worn. Why, 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 if we think about this in terms of how we think of things, why would he, oh boy, dare we say it when we're talking about Jesus, waste his time with one person, when why doesn't he just go straight into the town and deal with those men? 
and those people that are now walking forward. It's the individuality of of, of possession, friends. His precious possession of you as an individual, and he wants you to understand that. He wants her to understand that. I, I I don't save people in gross batches. I save individual souls. That's what I do. I speak to individual hearts, and that's what he's doing here. I have to open them up first, just like any good heart surgeon. It's got to be opened up. We can't leave that out. That scar tissue that you formed over your past has to be opened up. In terms of it being exposed so that you can see who I am. Because I who speak to you am the great I am. That's him. So at the very least, we can agree that this story is compelling. At the very least, it engages our mind, but also gets a hold of our, it takes captive our imagination, doesn't it? We're there at the well. We're there. We understand. We can identify with the woman there and the things that she's gone through. We understand. We're finding hope in this. We're witnesses to the conversion in story form, and it's a beautiful, glorious story indeed as we look at it. Now, backing up a little bit, because she has this confusion that needs to be corrected with regard to worship, doesn't she? You remember that? Verses 23 and 24, she's, she's trying to find some place to further vet out who he is back then, right? Well, I, I know that you say that we worship on Mount Gerizim, which is just a, a short distance from where she is. It's the modern day in Turkey. Ankar is thought to be where Sychar was. It's, it's under the shadow of Mount Gerizim. I, I know that we do that, and I know you Jews say that where we ought to worship is down in Jerusalem. And boy, does he correct her, doesn't he? But here's where she gets that from. Remember now, the Samaritans only held to the Pentateuch. They only believed in the first five books, the Mosaic Law. That's it. They didn't believe in any of the prophets, kings, any of that, any of the Psalms, all of that. And the location of worship, of course, changed with King David, who had the tabernacle taken to Jerusalem, and that's where the temple of course, ended up being built by his son. So we know that when they're entering the land in the conquest, the Israelites are entering the land of Canaan. They were commanded to read the blessings on Mount Gerizim. That, you can see them doing that actually in Joshua chapter 8. Deuteronomy 11.29 says this, And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it, you shall set the blessing, you shall set the blessing on Mount Gerizim and the curse on Mount Ebal. So that's another place that they would, they would worship, those two places. So they were commanded, though, first of all, to tear down all of the idol altars. You need to destroy those. He makes that clear in Deuteronomy chapter 12. And then he says from verse 4 to 6, you shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. I don't want you worshiping the way this world does. Stop it. Smash it. Destroy it. You shall not worship that way. But you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go. So these were various places, not only Mount Gerizim, but Mount Ebal, Shechem, places like this that they were appointed to worship. Shiloh was actually the center of worship all the way through the book of Judges. So there were different places that he has his people as they're conquesting, as they're conquering the Canaanite land and destroying the altars, that he has them set up places of worship. Don't go where they go. Don't worship what they worship. Don't go to their altars. Destroy them. So this is what her mindset is. So she has a legit question. She has a theological issue that she's trying to work through as, but I think... I think that she's using it to sort of vet out who is this man? Who is this man? 
The tabernacle, which was the Lord's dwelling place, was located in Canaan, where the Lord chose to dwell at that time until 2 Samuel 6, when David brought the tabernacle to Jerusalem. So you see this division, and, and they're a mixed race, as we've talked about before, when the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. Remember the split kingdom after Solomon? You had Israel to the north and Judah to the south. Well, that was conquered in 722 in the nor- uh, B.C. in the north, and those conquering peoples intermixed with the people, uh, the Israelites that were up there. So that's where they received the the despising of the Jews in the south. So this is what she's trying to work through in verse 22 of John chapter 4. You worship where you do not know. You worship, excuse me, what you do not know, Jesus corrects her. We worship what we know. Now this isn't just a a statement to just kind of, a general statement kind of shine her on, show her who's boss, whatever. No, this is very important information right here. You worship what you do not know. See, Gnosis, I mean, this is, this is personal. At least the real God, Yahweh, the one who's recapturing the souls of man, taking them to be a possession of his own, is according to knowledge, the Bible says. This is how you use the word epignosis, is, is the intimate, full knowledge of another person, someone who has personhood, capital P or lowercase p. You, you don't know who you worship. What is an idol? It's nothing, as the Bible points out. Paul pointed that out. An idol is nothing because it's not real. It's not true. Well, something's going on. Yeah, it's going on in the heart. Like we were learning this morning in first hour. That issue's going on in their heart. But there's no other gods. There's just the nasty fallen heart of man as we looked at all those verses this morning. Very fallen. We worship what we know, he says. Okay, help us out here. For salvation is from the Jews. Well, when Paul wrote, to Romans in Romans 3 verse 2 he said the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God the logion this is a form of logos or the word the word was given to the Jews the Jews were supposed to share that outside of their borders they narrowly defined what the interpretation of the word neighbor is to include exclusively only fellow Jewish people. Not the Samaritans and certainly not any other pagan nations, the Gentiles, no. But he entrusted this to the Jews, this his word to be shared. Romans 9, Paul says in verse 4 and 5, that they are Israelites and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. That's the Jews. You Samaritans don't know what you're doing. You don't know that you're worshiping nothing. So the word of God and salvation is of the Jews. That's why I'm here. Remember when it said at the beginning of our text that he had to go through Samaria. Well, that makes perfect sense if you fast forward to Acts 1 verse 8 where he says to his disciples, you will be my witnesses to Judah and that's it. Right? Is that what he said? What did he say? Judah and Samaria and the ends of the earth. That's where it was supposed to come from. So worship of God is no longer 
in a temple in any particular location. He corrected her on that too. A time is coming, and that would be 70 AD, when Titus Vespasian destroys the physical stone and mortar temple. That time is coming. It was very shortly going to happen in a few years. But that's not the point. It's not because they destroyed a temple that can't be rebuilt in stone and mortar. It's because the worship will take place. The temple will be where? The temple of the heart. When the Holy Spirit comes, he takes possession of an individual, not a town, not a people group. He takes possession of someone that he came after, that belongs to him that he loves and he enters their heart that's what he's doing with her that's what they were all called to worship will be done verse 24 in spirit and in truth it's a spiritual enterprise because our God is spirit he's not going to meet with us in some particular location anymore it's in our hearts salvation is from the Jews who were to share the way of the salvation with the whole world, and they did. That's the point. Isaiah 42 was read this morning. Isaiah 42, verse 1, and then verse 6 to 9. Behold my servant. He's talking about whom here? Jesus, the Messiah. This is the servant of God. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Verse 6, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. Verse 7, to open the eyes that are blind, praise the Lord, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, before they spring forth, I tell you them. What does that mean? The word sovereign should come to mind. I'm telling you what's going to happen, what I'm about to do, before it happens. How did they miss this? It's Isaiah 49, 5 to 6. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, this is interesting, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. It's too light a thing. I believe the NAS has it. It's too small a thing. You think I'm going to live in salvation to just you? No, you came up with that in your mind. You said that your neighbor was a fellow Jew. You were trying to keep this to yourself when I made it absolutely clear all the way back to the Mosaic Law that this was salvation for all nations. And so he says... I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. It would be too small of a project and I will glorify myself, he's saying, throughout all, not only of the earth, but all of the universe declares the glory of God. Psalm 19, yeah? He is the Savior of the world. Now, be careful here. This isn't to say that he will save the whole world. That would be universalism. It's that Christ's sacrifice, his atonement, will be sufficient for the sin of the world. But it only will be efficacious or it only will be effective to those who what? Believe. We have to be Understand that because this is misunderstood, sadly, by so many. 
There's only one Savior available in the world for the remission of sins. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me, saith the Lord in John 14, 6. And there is salvation in none other. Because there is no name under heaven that has been given among men by which man might, will, must be saved. Acts 4.12 We're not the exclusivists here. God is. It's His Son. It's His salvation project. His reclamation project. He's got individuals that He intends to save when all are deserving what? How many are guilty? How many deserve the just punishment of God? So we should be praising the Lord if this lights up our heart. What a great undeserved privilege. That's grace. That's grace. John 3.18, remember? We've been through chapter 3 already. Whoever believes in him is not Condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. See? Because he has not believed in the name of the Son, the only Son of God. That's it. We didn't write this. And thank God, we probably would have been far more merciless and said, let them all perish. Verse 36 of John 3, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. I I love how the Bible puts things in antithesis. You either believe and are saved, or you do not believe and are not saved. It's quite clear in the Scriptures. And the only way to be saved is to believe in Jesus as the Christ. There is no other way. Everything else is a false religion, a false belief. That's why we pray. John 8, 24, I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he... You will die in your sins unless you believe that I am He. I who speak to you am He. There it is. What a privilege. And look at who He's saying it to. Somebody that had the scorn of the entire town. All by herself. The loneliness, the outcast, the immorality. So... When, before we look at verse 27, then let's back up to verse 25 and 26. The woman said to him, and I've been alluding to these verses, the woman who said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. I know. She's convinced he's coming. That's faith. When he comes, he would tell us all things. He's going to be omniscient. He'll be able to speak the truth. And that's exactly what Jesus does in this scenario. But, But he cuts right to the chase, doesn't he? Verse 26, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And there is no pronoun in the Greek. It's simply, I who speak to you am. She knows what that means. You're the long-awaited one. You're the Messiah. So verse 27 in our text this morning, just then the disciples came back. What timing? It's almost like somebody's orchestrating all the timing, isn't it? At that moment, the disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? This expression in the Greek is quite literally that. At this precise moment. So in the text, John, the human right, he wants us all to know, and the Lord has said, this is now my word, that it was at that exact moment. What moment? The moment when he declared who he was. Your long-awaited Messiah, the prophet, the one who's able to tell you all the things that you ever did, 
I am. I am. And I've come for you. Because you're mine. And I will save you from your sins. A woman. Now this is amazing. Because in the rabbinical writings, Jews were not to talk to women. In their, in their own hand. For instance, one statement in rabbinical writing says, quote, Let no one talk with a woman in the street. No, not with his own wife. Well, that kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Because there's not everybody there. There's some folks that might not realize that that's your wife. So... You don't, want, you don't want the rest of the town to see a good Jewish man talking to a woman, do you? Here's another one. Talking with a woman is one of the six things which make a disciple impure. So Jesus is giving them a lesson in witnessing. He, more than that, he's setting the example for us. He's not only setting the example for us, he's setting a precedent with regard to gender, with regard to uh, social standing, with regard to race. Because now in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free, the master. There's none of those things. There's neither a man or a woman, all are equal. He's setting the precedent for gender equality. Amazing. Amazing. The crazy things that we might have been able to avoid in our culture if all were to simply believe what he says. We could avoid, hopefully, Madness, but that's a moot point now, isn't it? But no one said, the text says, but no one said. They didn't speak. This is the better part of wisdom, isn't it? When we don't understand the workings or the dealings of God. But for some of us, we have a tendency to, to, to blather on about what we're speculating about what God's doing. When I picture them with their jaws open. They said nothing. They usually do. They usually say, don't talk to him. What do you want from him? Thinking to impress the Messiah, I'm sure, because we're your front-line blockers. We'll make sure that people don't get through to you. Look, who are you, what are you doing touching his robe? Who do you think you are? She's a woman and she belongs to me. That's who she is. He's doing something different that's really got their attention here. We can't fully understand or comprehend the things that God is doing, and yet we pretend to. That speaks to our arrogance. What a pity. What a pity. We miss so much if we would simply keep our mouth shut and admit we don't know really what God is doing. Verse 28, So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, verse 29, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? So she left this water jar. The word for water jar is the same word used in chapter 2 when he's at the wedding of Cana, remember? Turning the water to wine. Those, those jugs were between 20 and 30 gallons. This is a big jug. So we can speculate a little bit here to why she left it behind. Maybe it's too heavy to carry back and she's anxious to get back to town. To, she's just discovered the Messiah. Or maybe since the disciples had walked up, it's a group of, of men that are thirsty, maybe left it there for them. We don't really, really know. But it's a large jug, one of those that women in Eastern cultures would carry on top of their heads, these big, big jars full of water. Oh, I think it's... I think it's as Thomas Chalmers wrote. It's the expulsive power of a new affection. 
It sets, as Jonathan Edwards said, it sets the feet a-going. When somebody's had their heart made alive, when, they're, when the scales have fallen from the eyes and they see the Christ, they want to rush. They want to go. I, I got to tell the people that I've known all my life in my town, I want to tell them, wow, where's the animosity? Where's that jaded attitude? Where's the sarcasm? It's gone. Why? 2 Corinthians 5.17 All those who are in Christ are a new creation. Old things have what? Passed away. Behold, all things are made new. We don't have, it's not a white dog, black dog fight. My old nature fighting against the new nature. Your entire nature has been remade. I'm sure we'll get to that at some point in the first hour. But you're still in this flesh that's fallen. Which is what our teacher was telling us this morning. And so that's the challenge. But I am entirely made new. He doesn't make half converts. That should encourage you. You are holy, with a W, holy and completely, entirely His remade. But you're in this body of flesh. You can go to 2 Corinthians 4 and read and muse on that for a while. Or you can look at 1 Corinthians 15 and look at these new bodies that we're going to get. Now let's focus on the gospel here. Let's see what's going on here. I think she's so filled with the love of Christ and seeing who he is. I think she's so entirely, entirely converted and and made. She's forgiven all of those sins. It's in the past. Those things he's chosen to separate as far as the east is from the west. Those sins are gone forever. He chooses not to remember them. Jeremiah, Hebrews tells us. It's choice. Unforgiveness is choosing to remember it. I'm going to hang on to this just in case. God doesn't do that. I'm going to hold on to this just in case I need it for leverage. We're rascals, aren't we? We really are. God help us. This is, this is Paul in Philippians 3, verse 8, first part. Indeed, I count everything as what? Loss. Why? Because of the surpassing worth, the immeasurable worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. This woman is completely made new. She has the love of Christ overflowing that small vessel of her heart. It can't contain the love of the Messiah. It's effervescent. It's overflowing. I got to go tell somebody. I've got to go tell somebody. He's here. The one we've been talking about, even from the Pentateuch, the expected one, he's here. The Messiah, God's promise to save. Hosanna. He's God with us. He's here. Can't you see him? Come and see a man. How quickly a newly converted person drops all animosity. It doesn't make any difference. These are souls who need this same Savior. My petty problems, my squabbles, so pale in comparison, it would be wrong of me to resurrect those nasty corpses. They're dead. They're dead with the death that Christ died and that I died to self. Come and see. I want you to see. Wouldn't you, if you had been ostracized from that culture, from that town, wouldn't you have a tendency to, you know what? I know about this. Nobody else was at the well. I'm keeping this to myself. At, at least for a little while. I'll let them twist in the wind for a while. They'll see this irremovable smile on my face and they'll think that, you know, I've had too much wine or something. Just let them guess. That's, we're rascals. But she doesn't do that. Come see a man. How quickly all of this animosity is abandoned. 
Instead, she's anxious to give them the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And why? For a verse that we heard this morning. I'll start it and you finish it. You heard it. Out of the abundance, the mouth speaks. Matthew 12, 34. Out of the abundance, what's, what's abundantly in my heart? What's abundantly in your heart? Your, your, your mouth will eventually reveal the content of your heart. It will. It will. There's no question about it. The church for father Origen referred to this Samaritan woman as the apostle to the Samaritans. That's her. She's an amazing woman, an amazing woman, who told me all that I ever did. This isn't to be taken literally, of course. We need to mention that. Time wouldn't allow for him to go down her entire life. We get it. This is a man who told me all about me. He knows the essence of me. He knows the things that I crave. He knows my dissatisfactions, my failures. He knows my sins. He knows all of these things. This is Messiah. It must be Messiah. He knows my secrets, the things I've held secret that I know nobody else knew. He knows all. He told me all that I ever did. He couldn't have possibly been there unless he was God. Jesus doesn't judge her in the cruel way that this town has. How cruel. Yet he doesn't hesitate in his loving, gentle way to expose her sin. Because that's what love does. It exposes sin. Why? Because that sin, the only way for it to heal, has to find its way to the cross. And sometimes we need somebody to take us by the hand. And that's what taken by the hand means. They're saying, I know these things about you. And I love you. So I want you to get to the cross where they can be completely expunged. Gone. Gone. Not just forgiven, but what? Cleansed from all unrighteousness. First John 1, remember? So we love each other enough to do that. It's not like they would be in the town where it's, this is a vendetta. This is just wrong. So you need to own up to this. No. He says, go get your husband. That's all he had to say. Ooh, I don't have a husband. Well, you're right to say that. The one you're with, this husband that you have, is not your husband. You've been with five husbands. He doesn't have to say any more than that. He doesn't have to berate her. He doesn't have to gossip like they're doing in the town talking about how nasty this woman is. He doesn't do that. He's not cruel. He does so in a way that's gentle and and winsome. That's him. Gaining her respect and capturing her heart. She belongs to him now. And he belongs to her. We sang All I Have is Christ this morning. That's so true for her, isn't it? You look around, made a shipwreck of your life. You come to him who says, I know who you are and what you've done. And I've come to save you. This woman is singing. If she had this song back then, I would, I would suggest she's probably singing that song on the way into town. All I have is Christ. Isaiah 11, 1 to 3. This is him. This is him prophesied. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. A branch from his roots shall bear fruit. We're seeing this. There's, the field is white unto harvest, he says to the disciples. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding. That's him. The Spirit of counsel and might. That's him. He shall not judge by what he sees he or decide disputes by what he hears. He won't do that to her like they've all done. The judges sit and stare 
with stone faces. So she says, that's fine. I'll just go get my water at noon. I understand because you're right. I'm as more immoral as they come. Does that surprise you? Did I surprise you with that? No, because he has to refer to another verse that someone's mentioning first hour this morning, which is 1 Samuel 16, 7. When Samuel's looking for the first king for Israel, don't look at the outward appearance. Man looks at the outward appearance. The Lord looks what? At the heart. Because he not only sees the sin, he sees the motive for it. He understands why. Which they don't care. They're not going to ask her that. That doesn't matter. We spotted the sin. That's it. So comfortable being a judge. So comfortable. Can this be the Christ? Notice how wisely she humbly keeps her station. She doesn't go in there strolling into town. Hey, guess what, all you judges? <laughs> no. What humility, what wisdom. And, and, and we're, remember, we're to be mining out the things that are helpful for us in terms of our witness of Christ. And this is a better way to do it. Could this, reading some things, well, here's, here's where your questions were, here's what's going on in your life, here's what we see. Could that, be, could that be him? Could that be God at work in your life in these regards? You tell me. Much more effective, isn't it? So a question gets the mind working where an affirmation coming in and making a statement, not so much. People will often turn off at that point. But a question gets the mind, the question is compelling. It gets the mind moving. Could this be the Christ? I don't know. What did he say? What did he do? We need to go see for ourselves. It worked. (laughs) It didn't. So rather than going to town and tell everybody what she knows, boy, that had to be a temptation for her. Wouldn't it be in the flesh? I mean... Yeah. They would have dismissed her as, as arrogant. She wisely, wisely defers to their own judgment. You, you tell me. That's humble. I think she really cares about these people. Or like I said, I don't think she'd have said a word about it. I'll be saved, but you know what these people deserve? They need to go exactly to the place that they deserve. The way they've treated me. This is good news to all Christians who think that, boy, I just don't have a a powerful enough apologetic developed to witness to people. No. No. Goodness, no. No of the sin that you've been cleansed from. No of the sin that you've been forgiven. And go to people and say, come and see a man, capital M, come and see him who told me all things that I ever did and who said, if you know who it is that's talking to you and who has the gift of God, if you knew what that gift was and who it was talking to you, that I have this water, this living water that will well up inside you and will last through eternity. That's what he said. You can say that, can't you? Of course you can. So can I. It's good to develop an apologetic. Necessary? Absolutely necessary? No. Because who among the body of Christ are called to witness the Christ? Like everybody? Come and see a man. Come and see a man. Revelation 22.17 The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. This is her. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. How did he, how was, how did he know to say that back then when Revelation wasn't written yet? <laughs> I'll ask him when we get there. 
No, we know the answer to that. This is him. This is the Logos himself. This is the word of God. This is the prophet. This is the Messiah. This is the Savior. This is him. This is the Son of God, I tell you. The Eternal One. That's who he is. So you come and see who this man is. Verse 30. They went out of town and were coming to him. Here they come. Here they come. On what? On a word from an unpopular social outcast. They're coming. Who can do that? Did she have the power to do that? No, I think that's part of why he picked her. Don't you? She's alone. She's got no friends. She's there alone. She's a very immoral woman. Wow. She's, at, she's far less educated than Nicodemus. I think we can surmise, can't we? She's far less educated than Nicodemus. But compare, juxtapose those stories, compare the two, Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman, who had the successful evangelical ministry. Nicodemus ended up sneaking around at night and going with Joseph of Arimathea to to wrap the, the the dead body of Jesus Christ. I don't hear of him, at least in the writings I've read, that he won a single soul. I think he got in by the skin of his teeth being a member of the Sanhedrin, quite frankly. But look at this woman and take hope. Look at this woman and say, come see a man. Leave this place and say, come see a man who told me, everything about myself. She is far more effective and bolder in her evangelism than Nicodemus, at least what's revealed in Scripture about Nicodemus. Verse 31, Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, and isn't this kind of a, a downturn in all the excitement? <laughs> Rabbi, eat, eat. You got to eat. Why don't you eat? We got food. We went to Sychar. We got food. Eat. And she's like, you know, running to town to tell about Jesus. Verse 32, but he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. My food, my nourishment is of something that you are unfamiliar with and do not understand. Why? Well, he's about to say, but we can start by saying, because I'm not nourished my priority to be nourished is not physical. It's spiritual, right? Verse 33, so the disciples said to one another, he just got through saying, I have food to eat that you do not know about. And what do they come up with? Verse 33, so the disciples, I would say, look, looked at each other, <laughs> said to one another, Someone brought him something to eat? Because we, we know that he didn't eat up to this point. That's why we, we had to go get some food. We offered it to him. Somebody must have fed him. He can't come up off of, just like Nicodemus, he can't come up off of viewing things on a, on a horizontal plane and look vertical. He can't go from the physical to the spiritual. It's like, what? How could you be full? You didn't have anything to eat. We've got plenty to eat here. Got plenty for you to eat. It reminded me of Matthew 16, 5 to 8. You remember this? When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring bread. Uh-oh. Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. What do you think they assumed he was talking about? Verse 7, And they began discussing it among themselves saying, we brought no bread. He's talking about the leaven. Of the, I don't know what kind of leaven that is, but we don't even have bread. <laughs> we can be dull, can't we? So he needs a change of perspective, just like Nicodemus, just like the Samaritan woman. Why didn't they speak up and say something about that? Who was this? And she is bolting toward... She didn't even take her water jar. 
God didn't see that as sufficient thing to include in, in the scripture. He left us to speculate, but so we can assume that it's not that important. But it just does beg the question, why, why didn't they ask what happened to her? So he is nourished through simply indulging himself in the Father's will. That's what he does. He's literally nourished in his soul by the care of souls. That's, that's what nourishes him. So he doesn't think about food. And now it's a few minutes to 12. What are you thinking about? <laughs> what are you nourished by? That's okay. I understand. We're human. Proverbs 18.20 says something interesting. Listen to this. From the fruit of a man's mouth, his, sum, his stomach is satisfied. It's from the fruit of the things that Messiah is saying that he's fully satisfied, not even noticing his, the emptiness of a physical stomach. From the fruit of a man's mouth, his stomach is satisfied. He is satisfied by the yield of his lips. Is he not seeing a yield right then and there? The harvest is white. We need more workers. Wow. Job 23, 12. Remember when he said this? I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my portion of food, of physical food. The word of God is more important. Didn't Jesus point that out in the temptation to Satan? You're hungry. 40 days, 40 nights without eating, you're hungry. Hey, why don't you turn those rocks into bread? I, I, don't, I don't live by physical bread, but by the very word of God. That's what I'm nourished by. And abiding by those words and fulfilling the word of the Father, that's what gets him going. Acts 10, it says of Jesus in verse 38, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing and all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. I like what it says about Hezekiah. You can see where they get their nourishing. 2 Chronicles 31, 20 to 21, thus Hezekiah did throughout all Judah and he did what was good and right and faithful before the Lord his God. And every work that he undertook in the service of the house of God and in accordance with the law and commandments, seeking his God, he did with all his heart and prospered. That's just another way of putting it. He delights himself in, the, in fulfilling the will of God. Whatever that will is, that's what makes me happy. That's what makes me prosper in this life, as God defines the word prosper. Romans 12, 11, Do not be slothful and in zeal. Be fervent in spirit and serve the Lord. These are our marching orders to, for what will nourish our souls. Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not men. Those who faithfully continue in the fields of the Lord, continuing to do the work of the Lord, but see what they think is little fruit, are measuring things the way man measures them. Because God measures them by our faithfulness. He doesn't quantify it. Not success to him. Psalm 126, 5 to 6, Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. And so Galatians 6, 9, as we're bringing this thing in for a landing, Galatians 6, 9, and 10, And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Don't quit. Don't quit. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Second Thessalonians 3.13 As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. 
Isaiah 40, verse 29, He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, He increases strength. Praise the Lord. 2 Corinthians 4, 1, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Two more. Isaiah 9, 2-3, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, and they are glad when they divide the spoil. And finally, Zephaniah 3, 16-17, On that day, It shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. That's what he's doing. As all the angels in heaven are rejoicing over that one immoral, social outcast who is now His, saved for eternity. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for all that Your Word has to say. We're limited by the constraints of time, but, O Lord, Your Word is replete with these truths that give us all the reason we would ever need to rejoice O Lord, free up our lips. Help us to repent of holding back. Time is fast escaping. The time of your return is imminent. O Lord, may we be about the work of the Lord. May we be found in the fields of the Lord. Lay down that charge when we lay down our bodies. This we ask for your glory's sake. Amen.